Please take your copy of the Holy Scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. The essence of discipleship. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I'm afraid that contemporary Christianity is very confused about discipleship in multiple ways. One concern I have is this bifurcation between being a Christian and being a disciple. And we almost act as if a disciple is some kind of high shelf, top tier Christian, a step above ordinary Christians. When the New Testament is clear, that properly defined Christian and disciple are synonymous. If you're not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. The Lord Jesus is clear in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He commands us to make disciples, and then once a person becomes a disciple, then they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and taught to obey all of Jesus' commandments. The fact that disciples are those who are to be baptized makes it clear that a disciple is not just some super Christian. A disciple is a true and ordinary Christian. Another element of confusion I'm concerned about relates to our view of what constitutes discipleship. And I'm afraid that Christian leaders have created this problem. We have a Bible study, and we call it a discipleship class. Or we publish a book on some particular biblical theme, and we call it a discipleship manual. And in the process, we give the impression that simple Bible study is the essence of discipleship. When it is not, there is much more to true discipleship than merely studying the words of Holy Scripture. So what is discipleship? Well, I'm convinced that the Lord Jesus clues us in on the main features of discipleship here in Matthew chapter 4. Now, typically when we look at this passage, our focus is exclusively on that mandate to be fishers of men, to preach the gospel and be evangelistic. And that's certainly a component of discipleship, but there is far more to it than that. The Lord Jesus shows us here that true disciples 
are those who seek to follow Jesus' example in every way. True disciples are those who, yes, tell others about him. The true disciples are those who treasure Christ above every earthly thing. And true disciples are those who love Jesus more than anyone. First of all, true disciples are those who follow Jesus' example. Jesus says both to Peter and Andrew and then to James and John, follow me. Now, this command didn't just mean to accompany Jesus wherever he went. If he goes to Capernaum, we go to Capernaum. If he goes to Jerusalem, we go to Jerusalem. It meant far, far more. The disciples of the ancient Jewish rabbis walked behind the rabbinic teacher. And they did so, first of all, in a show of respect, but more than anything else, they did it so that they could hear his every word and then repeat it after him until they memorized it verbatim and could pass it down to others. And they walked behind the master so that they could lock their eyes on him, see his every movement, his every gesture, and then mimic it, imitate it, so that they could become in every way like their master. So when Jesus tells these four men, follow me, it's an invitation to discipleship in which they seek to imitate Jesus' actions. They seek to emulate his example. They seek to become in every way humanly possible like him. You should know by now from our study of Matthew that when we become a Christian, we recognize Jesus as our God, our Savior, and our King, but we could also add to that, we recognize Jesus as our hero, as our idol in the modern sense of the world. He's the one we want to be like. He's the one that we pattern our lives after. When we grow up, we want to be just like him. The best commentary and application that was ever written on this command, follow me, was not penned by some great modern scholar but actually by one of these four men to whom this command was addressed, the Apostle Peter himself. He writes in 1 Peter 2:21, Christ left you an example that you may follow in his steps. It's universally recognized that this is Peter's reference back to Jesus invitation to discipleship and his explanation of what that command entailed. Christ left you an example that you may follow in his steps. Every word of this little commentary is significant. Notice first of all that Peter refers to an example. The word in Greek is hupagramas. And the preposition hupa means under, the noun gramos means writing. So Peter says, Christ left you the underwriting. What does he mean by that? 
Well, in ancient times, the underwriting referred to a model or sketch that was to be traced over when writing or drawing. Now, this is the very same word that ancient writers like Plato and Clement of Alexandria, the early church father, used to describe models of the letters of the Hebrew or the Greek alphabet that an elementary school student would trace over again and again as they learned to read and write. You probably know the kind of thing that I'm talking about. When I was uh, five years old in Northeast Mississippi, Mississippi didn't require that students attend kindergarten. It wasn't mandatory. And so my mother decided that she was going to keep her kids home during their kindergarten year, and she was going to teach them their numbers and their letters. She had no idea what she was biting off when she decided to do that with her eldest son, Chuck. I mean, I was used to riding my trusty stick horse silver around the pasture all day long. I was used to climbing trees all day long. And now my mother expected me to sit down in a chair at a table for sometimes 10 or even 15 minutes and to learn my numbers and letters. And she struggled and she struggled and, and she almost gave up. She, she said to me several times, Chuck, if you don't learn your letters, you'll never learn to read or write. To which I would retort, Mama, cowboys don't need to know how to read and write. <laughs> and she had almost given up on old Chuck and decided to let him be an illiterate cowboy. When she went to the local TGNY, that was called a nickel and dime store. We don't see those any longer, do we? And she found a, a little book full of diagrams that looked something like this. Look familiar? Oh, yeah. Most of you in elementary school had a diagram like this, and you knew to connect the dots and trace over it again and again until you could form the letters of the alphabet just like your teacher them. What you may not have realized is when you did that, you were doing something that people have done for thousands and thousands of years as they learned to read and write. And what Peter is telling us is that when Jesus said, follow me, he was laying his life down as the sketch, the pattern that we are to follow in our own lives. Our daily goal should be to trace over the contours of Jesus' life until our life looks like His life, until our character looks like His character, until our priorities look like His priorities. Our goal is to follow His example in every possible way. But Peter doesn't stop there. He tells us tracing's not just kid stuff. It's the essence of discipleship. Trace over the pattern that Jesus left for you, but then he adds, Jesus left us the underwriting that we may follow in his steps. The word steps here literally means footprints. 
And the idea is that the disciple of Jesus Christ should recognize that the Christian life is essentially like the old game, follow the leader. And Jesus is the leader. And we watch him and we do what he does. We go where he goes. We speak as he speaks. We follow in his footsteps. When I was a boy, I was fascinated by what we now refer to as the indigenous peoples of America, the Native Americans. One of my father's dear friends was a man named Sam Consolving, who was the chief of the Apache Nation up until his death. And he discovered my fascination with Indians and their ways. And he decided that he would have a little ceremony for, one, for me one day in which he inducted me into the Apache tribe. And he gave me a bear claw necklace with a big piece of turquoise in the middle of it. And in the ceremony, he gave me my own Apache name, Chescalupe, which means white wolf caused no small controversy in my family because my younger brother was given the name Benash, which meant little squirrel. <laughs> you see the problem. White wolf, little squirrel. I was named White Wolf because Sam Consolving's son, my Indian blood brother, was named Red Wolf, and so he thought that it was appropriate. After that, I was really hooked. I was constantly reading about the American Indians and doing everything that I could to adopt their ways. For a brief period of time, we lived in a subdivision in Clinton, Mississippi, and we probably horrified our neighbors because I had a teepee in the backyard. And I had a deer hide tacked on one of the trees that I was tanning. And I had a little fire pit in the back where I was trying to make arrowheads and tomahawk heads the Indian way. I was making bows and arrows and learning to throw knives and tomahawks and that kind of thing. I wanted to be an Indian. And so much so that when my best friend Mike Robertson and I were roaming the woods, in uh, rural northeast Mississippi in a little community called Yachtney, there on Pumpkin Creek, we would play a little game. I had read in one of my books that when some warriors were going through enemy territory, that they would walk single file and that each warrior would step in the footprints of the warrior ahead of him so that if an enemy tracker came behind them, he wouldn't be able to tell that a war party of 20 had just passed. He would think that it was just one. And Mike and I would take turns walking in each other's footprints so that if some enemy tracker came behind us, they would not be able to tell if we were two or just one. And in a sense, that old childhood game is the daily challenge and responsibility of every disciple of Jesus Christ. 
The goal of our lives should be to walk in His footprints so that when someone someday comes behind us and traces the path of our life, they won't be able to distinguish our footsteps from those of Christ Himself. Several years ago, it was very popular in Christian youth culture to find that acronym WWJD, which stood for what would Jesus do? And some of us may have brushed that aside as if it's kid stuff, as if that's something for Christian youth culture, but not for us big boys and big girls. Oh, no. When Christ says, follow me, and when Peter explains that means Christ left you an example that you should follow in his steps, what he's saying is WWJD ought to be the determining factor for every decision that we face. Our constant goal in life must be to be like our Savior. Mary Slade captured this in a hymn that she wrote back in the mid-1800s that many of you will be familiar with. And the first lines of the hymn say, Sweetly, Lord, we have heard thee calling. Come, follow me. And we see where thy footprints falling lead us to thee. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. Not only is the disciple of Jesus Christ to follow Jesus' example, we're also to share the good news. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Just as Peter and Andrew, James and John had spent their entire lives since the age of five fishing the waters of the Sea of Galilee so that they could gather fish and sell them in the open air markets of Capernaum, Jesus now wants these four men to cast the net of the gospel out broadly and to gather repentant and believing sinners into the kingdom of God. And the way the Lord Jesus expresses his statement here makes it clear that fishing for people, sharing the gospel, being faithful in evangelism is intrinsic to true Christian discipleship. Notice he didn't say, follow me and you might become fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me and hopefully you will become fishers of men. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a profound difference. First of all, the fact that the Lord Jesus uses the future indicative here makes it clear that being fishers of men is a definite result of true discipleship. Well, so obviously, we can't follow Jesus' example. We can't walk in his footsteps and not love lost souls or hide and hoard the gospel that is their only hope for salvation. If we're following the example of Jesus, we will seek to draw others to the Savior. 
But not only is it important that the Lord Jesus uses the future indicative here, making it clear that this is something that definitely will happen for Jesus' disciples. It's significant also that he doesn't just say, you will become fishers of men, but instead, I will make you fishers of men. What the Lord Jesus is saying is that he is the one who produces fishers of men. He is the one who enables us and empowers us to share the gospel faithfully and boldly. And he is the one who ultimately ensures our success. How is it that he makes us fishers of men? Well, first of all, he transforms our heart so that we love people like he loves them. And it is that love that compels us to share the good news of salvation with others. And it's that same transforming power of the Lord Jesus that emboldens us to not back down, to not shut up, but to share the message as we have opportunity. And it is the Lord Jesus himself who makes us effective in this evangelistic work. And ultimately, our ability to win people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't dependent upon our charisma. It's not dependent on our eloquence. It's not dependent on our skills in argumentation. It is dependent on the power of Jesus Christ that he unleashes in the proclamation of the gospel. As the apostle Paul said, some plant the seed, some water the seed, but God gives the increase. This work is his, and it is to his praise and glory alone. It's no accident that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' statement, I will make you fishers of men, is preceded by a miracle story. Do you remember the miracle? The disciples had fished in the waters of Galilee all day and all night, and they had not caught a single fish. And the Lord Jesus comes along and says, throw your nets out one more time. And the disciples say, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. They let down their nets, and what happened? They pulled in what's known as the miraculous draft of fish, a haul so great that it threatened to sink the boats and burst the nets. And it's then that Jesus says, from now on, you will be fishing for men. What's Christ doing? He's using the miraculous catch of fish to teach his disciples that they would net an equally great number of souls if they were just faithful to Jesus' instructions and they didn't give up even when they fished and fished and fished and seemed to catch nothing. And Jesus' promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? When in a single day, 
3,000 souls bowed the knee to Jesus as God, Savior, and King, received the gift of forgiveness and transforming power, and were bound for the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we're like Peter and the other disciples, aren't we? We fished long and hard, and we have caught nothing. And Christ says, cast the net one more time. And we want to shrug our shoulders and say, what's the use? But if we obey the command of the Lord Jesus, we may just be surprised by a miraculous catch. If our previous lack of success becomes an excuse for casting our nets aside and docking our fishing boats, we might miss the miraculous catch that awaits those who heed Jesus' instructions and cast the net wherever he commands. So what I urge you is be faithful and consistent and constant in sharing the good news. I'm convinced we never fail when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ because our responsibility is to share the good news and then we leave the results to God and to the hearer. We're not responsible for their response to the gospel message. And it has horrifying consequences to imagine that we are responsible for their response. We cast the net and we cast the net and we cast the net, no matter how large or small the catch may be, and we trust the one who makes us fishers of men to one day give us a harvest of souls. Sadly, we're in a culture where the opposition to the gospel has grown fierce enough that many of us have retreated into silence. And let me be clear, if we, driven by fear, hide and hoard the gospel message that people in our culture so desperately need to hear, we are not acting as disciples of Jesus Christ. My favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts, once penned this question in a familiar hymn, am I a soldier of the cross? a follower of the Lamb. And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? But Watts is reminding us is that if we are afraid to own the cause of Christ, if we are embarrassed to speak the name of Christ, we are not acting as soldiers of the cross or followers of the Lamb. We are behaving as traitors. Not only does the disciple follow Jesus' example, not only does the disciple share the good news, the disciple share, treasures Christ above all earthly things. Christ says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. And they immediately do. And in doing so, they show that their King and Savior, the Lord Jesus, 
meant more to him them than their livelihood. According to the Mishnah, it was the responsibility of a Jewish father to begin to train his sons in his trade beginning at the age of five. And so since they were five years old, Peter and Andrew had been coached by their father to fish the waters of the Sea of Galilee and to one day take over and inherit the fishing business that he passed down to them and which had been passed down to him by his grandfather and which had been passed down to him by his great-grandfather and so forth. Now, this trade was an enviable one. It was not only the only trade and occupation that they knew, and it was not only a part of their rich heritage as a family, it was lucrative. Fish was the one staple meat that the ordinary person in Judea or Galilee ate every single day. It was in high demand. There was always a market for fish. Consequently, men who were able to catch fish and then sell them in the open-air markets of cities like Capernaum that were highly trafficked and heavily populated could make a handsome sum of money. They were far better off than most of the peasant population in the ancient world. They were relatively wealthy. They were successful businessmen. And when Christ says, follow me, they face the decision, will we obey his command? Or will we preserve this aspect of our heritage and all of the financial privileges that it brings to our family? Now, we know from the rest of the account that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were in their fishing boats with Zebedee, their father, and their hired hands. So they had a pretty big fishing operation. And since Zebedee was still at work and since the hired hands could still do their job, that fishing business could still generate an income even after James and John stepped away from it. There's no mention here of the father of Peter and Andrew. There is no mention of hired hands. And the implication seems to be that the father of these two fishermen had died years before. Their business wasn't large enough to have employees. Peter and Andrew were it. And when they docked their fishing boat, and when they hung their fishing nets out to dry, they were essentially having a going out of business sale and hanging a permanently closed sign on the door of their business. This is serious. They must have questions in the back of their minds like, how are we going to feed our families if we make such an enormous financial sacrifice? And yet when Jesus says, follow me, they immediately obey despite the sacrifice that is entailed. Their example reminds me 
of the call of Elisha back in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 25. Elisha was the son of a wealthy farmer. He was plowing his fields one day with 11 farmhands who were in his employment. When suddenly, Elijah, the famous prophet, walks across the field, drapes his own cloak around Elisha's shoulders, which meant, I am choosing you as my apprentice and as my successor. And what does Elisha do? Does he turn to the prophet and say, now hold on, you really don't expect me to give all this up to obey the call of God, do you? Oh, no. He immediately slaughters the oxen that had been dragging his plow. He then takes the farm implements, piles them up, and sets them ablaze, and he uses that fire to cook the beef from the oxen that he had just slaughtered, and then he feeds the entire work crew. He kisses his mother and father goodbye, and he obeys the call of God and follows the prophet and learns from him. And when Peter and Andrew, and to a certain extent James and John, say yes to Jesus' call to discipleship, they're making the same kind of enormous sacrifices. And in doing so, they are showing that Jesus is more treasured by them than any earthly possession, than any job, than any career, than any income. Their chief purpose in life is to obey their Lord. In Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to Christ, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And the Lord Jesus doesn't rebuke him after he says that. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, quit being such a drama queen. Quit exaggerating. No, the way he responds to Peter makes it clear that he really had left everything. The sacrifices he had made were enormous. But the Lord Jesus insisted that the reward he would receive would be so great that the sacrifice would pale in comparison. He said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was saying, as Peter, yes, in this life, you may live as paupers out of your obedience to me. But make no mistake, the paupers will become princes when the kingdom of God dawns. The blessings that are entailed and answering the call to discipleship vastly exceed any sacrifice involved. The essence of discipleship is following the example of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of salvation faithfully, treasuring Christ above everything, and finally, loving Christ 
more than anyone. While Peter and Andrew made enormous financial sacrifices to follow Jesus, James and John, I'm convinced, made a huge family sacrifice. As I said, under the rules of the Mishnah, Jewish men schooled their sons beginning at age five in the family occupation with the intention of passing it down to them. Zebedee is, by first century standards now, an aged man. He's getting to that point of retirement where he wants to hand the business over to his sons, and now they're going to fish the waters and provide for him and his wife in their old age. They're going to carry on the family tradition. They'll become the managers of the family business. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly how this conversation went with Zebedee. Let me just ask you, have you ever known a young man whom his father had coached from childhood to take over the family business who decided to do something else instead? And how did that go for him? When I read this account, I think there's tension in the air. I think Zebedee is not very happy with these two boys. I think he feels abandoned, forsaken, and betrayed by them. I would not be surprised as Zebedee says, okay, you follow this crazy rabbi if you want to, but please understand, if you do, you are dead to me. If you do, you forget any inheritance. If you do, don't show up at the family reunion. If you do, I no longer consider you my sons. And when James and John commit to follow Christ, despite the fact that they must leave their father and not just their boats and nets, leave their father to follow Jesus. They are displaying to us the kind of sacrifice that often is a consequence of Christian discipleship. In Matthew 10, 34, the great missionary discourse, the Lord Jesus will say, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And what Christ is saying is make no mistake, Christian discipleship can be costly. Your families may turn their back on you. They may declare you dead. As we'll see in the great Olivet Discourse, some of our own family members will be among those who report Christians to the authorities and demand their execution when persecution is its most intense. And for that reason, the Lord Jesus added, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what Christ is saying is the true disciple must love Christ above everyone. 
Because for all we know, the day may come when we have to choose between love for Christ and loyalty to them. For those who do love Christ above all else, he promises great reward. He said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's a lot packed into this promise that we can't fully explore. Let me just point one thing out. Jesus is saying, you'll have 100-fold more family if you follow me and love me above all than if you refuse. Why? It's because when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we become brothers and sisters in a family far, far greater and bigger than our biological one. We become brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have a family that extends not just to every person that's in this room today, but to everyone who has professed faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King all around the world. And not only is this spiritual family bigger than our biological family, it is far, far better than our biological family. Because no one can love a brother or sister like they really need to love, be loved, who has not experienced the love of Christ, who doesn't understand the sacrificial nature of love, who doesn't understand how compassion compels forgiveness, and so forth. So what Christ is urging us to do is is not trade away the blessings of a spiritual family to preserve relationships with a biological one, but to follow Christ. And in doing so, we will experience blessings that make the sacrifice pale in comparison. The true disciple will follow Jesus' example, will share the good news, will treasure Christ above everything, and will love Christ more than anyone. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And let me lead you in a prayer of commitment related to these truths. Did you think that saving faith was something uh, flippant and superficial with a shrug of the shoulders? Oh, sure, I, I believe in Jesus. Or do you recognize that the gift of salvation is so incredibly precious that the sacrifice that Christ made in our behalf was so indescribably intense that this is a gift, as Isaac Watts penned in the hymn, demands our soul, our life, our all. Christian discipleship is not a flippant commitment 
but it is an expression of wholehearted devotion to the Savior. So I urge you to pray right now and say, Lord Jesus, help me follow your example. Help me to trace over the pattern you left for me with your own life. Help me to walk in your footsteps. Make me like you. Teach me to think with the mind of Christ, to see with the eyes of Christ, to love with the heart of Christ, to serve with the hands of Christ. Conform my character to yours, Lord. Pray that the Lord would embolden you to share the good news. Ask that you would be daily reminded that this is not optional for the Christian disciples. Because Christ said, I will, unfailingly, I will make you fishers of men. Would you pray that the Lord would do that transforming work? You say, I don't, I don't have the verbal skills. I, I don't have the personality. He said, I will make you fishers of men. Ask him to transform you so that you won't blush at the name of Jesus that you won't be ashamed to own his cause, that you'll be moved with compassion to share with others their only hope for eternity. Pray that the Lord would move you to treasure Christ above every earthly thing. It is so easy in our materialistic culture to become distracted from what matters most. And the retirement account always has to be bigger and bigger and bigger, and the car has to be newer and nicer. You know the trap. Pray that God would align your priorities with those of his own heart, and that Christ would matter more to you than any earthly thing and that consequently you would be willing to make any sacrifice that he asks of you. And pray that you would love Christ more than any other person. There are all kinds of human relationships that would tear us away from Christ. Maybe it's a relationship that's been growing between an unbeliever who became a friend and then a boyfriend or a girlfriend and the scripture is clear on this that we must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers why because you'll be placed in an impossible situation of constantly choosing between your devotion to them and your devotion to him 
And it must be clear that our heart belongs to Jesus above all. For the supreme commandment of Scripture is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And there can be no rivals to that love. Why are so many people deconstructing and turning their back on their faith? There are a number of reasons, but one of them is that they never loved Christ above all in the first place. And they're being drawn away from Him by others that they really loved more deeply all along. Dear Father, we do not just want to be those who flippantly call ourselves Christians and make excuses for our immaturity, for our sin, for our negligence. Oh, I'm just a Christian. I'm not a disciple yet. Uh, remind us that there are no two Christians who are not true disciples. And move us today to make the wholehearted commitments of genuine Christian discipleship. Lord, I pray that if there's any person in this room that's not a disciple of Jesus, that you would draw them to repentance and faith right now. That they would recognize the depths of their depravity, their sinfulness, the fact that there's nothing they can do to save themselves that they would come to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and their place, and because of that, the free gift of eternal life, of complete and total forgiveness, and the gift of a changed life can all be theirs through simple faith in Jesus. Move them to believe in Jesus as God, as Savior, and to submit to his authority as the king of their lives. And make them the kind of disciple that Jesus made of these four men. Those who love him above all else and above anything, who share the good news boldly, who follow Christ's example. And Lord, begin to give them that boldness by moving them forward during this invitation in just a moment. And we recognize that if people are unwilling to acknowledge before their brothers and sisters in Christ that they have chosen to become your follower, that they will surely be ashamed to acknowledge you before unbelievers. So we pray that you would give new disciples the boldness to make their commitment known before they leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.